It's on now. Um, last week, and or at the end of uh, Christmas season, and then we had the Transfiguration um, uh, text last week, when we talked about sort of, and again, we'll see a parallel to that, where, where Jesus has confessed as Lord, and then he begins to tell them how he must suffer many things, and he goes up on the mountain, and he's transfigured before them in sort of this resurrection, pre-resurrection almost appearance for them. Um, and then we go back to the temptation this week. And I think that there's um, a way that these are intention and they pull together. I always uh, dislike that the lectionary does, uh, which is sort of the way that assigned readings are for these seasons, does the transfiguration before the temptation. But I think going back in this way, you can see the tension that's inherent in Jesus's story. Um, with the text that Brian read us from the book of Genesis, all the way back in the beginning for the people following the story and following these people, is it's not just a, enough that Jesus is a miraculous worker or that he's a good moral teacher or that he is going to um, uh, be transfigured before them but that he is going to be drawn into this conflict that's existed from the beginning of the book. That early, early on, there's this tension between this, this one who comes among humans as a snake and pulls them away from what God has commanded them to be. And the temptation there is that they would be like God's. And there's this way in which they're invited to define reality themselves that when they eat from that tree, they will be able to sort of express reality in the ways that they want to express it. That temptation isn't far from us today either. And so what happens at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and this is one of those ones that is at the beginning of all three gospels of the first three. It's, it's at the beginning of um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, differently told in each of them just a little bit. Uh, Luke doesn't really give us any, de- or Mark doesn't give us details about the temptation. Um, Luke flips two of the temptations, and Matthew just sort of goes through it the way it is. Um, and that's why we return to these stories every year, because they must be trying to tell us something and preserving it this way. It's noticeably absent from John, but I was talking to Kelly this week, is that John is about an exorcism of the cosmos. Jesus is throwing Satan out, if you follow the reference in, in John, to he's throwing him out of the world. It's not enough that he's just throwing him out in temptation or of people. There's limited exorcisms in John as well, but he's throwing him out of everything. And that's the way that cosmic gospel sort of of John works, is that it's not just in this little sphere, but it's in the whole world that Christ is is reconciling all things. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this sort of zoomed in, what does it mean in the particular? And so we have this teaching for us today where Jesus is drawn out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So that throws us back to that baptism scene, that Jesus has received the Spirit and heard the voice from heaven that says, this is my Son whom I love. And these are multifaceted stories, as as I've talked about. And the temptation for me, (laughs) temptation on Temptation Sunday, um, Thanks for the laugh, Emily. Um, the, uh, <laughs> is to try and grab all of them and make sense of them. But we return to them every year. And so it's, it's, it's to stick with sort of one and sort of work through it, to not to sort of go after all the ways in which this can be meaningful. But within its context, Jesus is declared as this one, and the Spirit drags him out to this place. One of the tensions I want us to notice in this is that this first one is by the Spirit and then the temptation by the devil. 
That Jesus is, is living in this, this um, tension as he goes out. It is by the Spirit that he is brought out to the wilderness. And it is by the devil that he is tempted. That this is sort of the pull that exists here, is that Jesus in his ministry will be led by the Spirit. And around him will not just be the devil, but other things that intend to pull him off his task and his personhood in his place. And what's, what's coming at the end of this, as is, is Chris read, which is often, I'm glad it was captured in the images, but often lost on me, is that angels come and minister to him after the temptation. That this text takes place in a, in a, a three- or four-dimensional universe, unlike the way that most of us live. We can explain things by science or by reason or by what the choices we've made, but the idea that there is both spirit around us, that there is this temptation that comes through one who is an adversary, which is another name for the devil, and that there are angels who administer to, or, or minister to people as they withstand those forces is not normal parlance for Christians. For some it is, and we go, ah, oh, they're a little out there. Um, but for us, I think it's important to say, how do we reclaim the way of looking at the world that way? Um, the, the quote on the back of the bulletin for today is, the central message of the New Testament is salvation. Christ saves. What he saves us from is the power of the devil. If the power of the devil is dismissed, then Christ's saving mission becomes meaningless. Now, I don't, I'm not sure I would agree entirely with Burton here. I think that there are many different ways in which Christ saves us in the New Testament. He saves us from our sins. He saves us um, uh, from destruction. He saves us from ruin. He saves us in lots of different ways. But certainly one of the ways that the New Testament is going to talk about saving us is saving us from the principalities and powers, the devils and darkness in the world. And if you diminish any of those, the ones that I might like as much as, as the devil one, you diminish the saving power of what Christ is doing in the world. And so it's, it's this text that draws us to this idea of what does it mean that the devil is in conflict with Jesus? What does it mean in which this is a world in which conflict is embedded between these two powers? And, and to be careful here, um, it's not dualistic. There is not this evil power and this other power and their good power and they're warring and it's not determined who will win. When in fact, there is a party which has made the world, declared it as it is, intends to consummate it, and there is a rebellion in the midst. But the one who is in charge is not in threat of losing this battle. It's not a, um, uh, a dualistic war per se. But what is important to say is that the one who wants to destroy and tear down is real there, is working to undermine and destroy. And so these temptations that Jesus has faced are, are distinct temptations for him. There's one, of the, one of the ways in which I always try to approach this text is not to say that how this, um, if this is the first Sunday of Lent, first off, I would not say that Jesus' temptations in the wilderness are like your temptations to chocolate as you gave it up in Lent. Um, and that's funny because obviously the scale is much different, but the uniqueness of Jesus's call is much different too. It's not, it's not just to say this isn't 
the scale makes it meaningless. It's actually the call of who Jesus is is what makes it different. Um, what does it mean for Christ to have entered into the sphere and withstand these temptations? And I was thinking about it this week. It's, it's particularly that these are temptations that face the people of God if they face um, us distinctly from Jesus. And what I mean by that is the, the idea in which I am going to go on a diet or do something like this is a temptation that faces everyone. But the temptation to use your calling by God to fulfill some temporary need, turning breads into stone, or testing God by throwing yourself into uh, difficult situations, or by bowing and, and using utilitarianism to say, if I just worship this one for a moment, everything, I'll be able to repair everything. Those are temptations that are unique unto the people of God. These aren't just temptations that face everyone. And, and in my mm, sort of an intense sort of Christological sort of focus, I, I generally want to preserve that they're temptations unique to Jesus Christ and his identity. But I think that the text, it's hard to say that it's preserved just for that meaning. And so I want to take one uh, quick aside to, to talk about the devil as we've sort of been going around it. There's a famous interview with um, a Supreme Court justice where he's, I think it's in the Atlantic, where the person interviewing him, it says something and he says, well, you know, that might be the cause of the devil. And the person goes, you don't really believe in the devil, do you? And he's like, you're looking at me as if I have four heads. Um, and, and he sort of calls out that, you know, I, I in fact do believe in the devil. And he sort of reverses it. And it's like, how far displaced are you from the rest of the world? that like most Americans, if you do a poll, believe that the devil is real. Like he kind of reverses on her. Yeah, I may seem odd to you. I think it was, was for her, the interviewee, it was the idea that a Supreme Court justice could walk around believing in the devil. But he, she asks him, well, what's, what's the devil been up to? And he says, well, he's doing all sorts of wily stuff in the New Testament, um, jumping in the pigs and running them off cliffs and doing these other things. He says, I think he's gotten wiser with time. And he, he asked her, have you read the Screwtape Letters? Um, and the Screwtape Letters has this way of sort of placing this conflict, not just in like this um, obvious ways in which this could, could happen in the world, but in more um, interior ways in which we're being pulled away. It's not that the devil just wants to be in the grand. It's more um, targeted than that, that God just he wants to pull us away from which God has meant for us. This is an aside that is, I think, funny and interesting. The, the Door, which was a famous satirical a Christian magazine, would interview Christian celebrities, and they would get good answers to questions. They must have not had somebody one month, so they interviewed Satan. Um, and uh, they interviewed Satan in a, in a screw tape letters-like kind of way, and they asked him, they said, what have you been up to? And he said, well, Hollywood. I've been making movies. <laughs> And then he said, okay, well, what type of movies? You know, like um, scary movies or pornography? And he was like, no, chick flicks. And they were like, well, that seems... He was like, well, the pornography and, and scary movies, you guys take care of that. That's your own fascination and interest. Chick flicks are great for me. And they were like, okay, what, what, what do you want here, here? And he said, you know, the idea with, with the, the chick flick is that my goal is to keep every man or every woman perpetually depressed with the man that she's with while they watch these films. And they're, they, they, they're like, oh, that's interesting. And he's like, the other thing I invented recently was the zero principle, which there are days in the year, and this is the way in which he's working to undermine relationships. There are days in the years which there is so many things that a man must do to get back to zero. 
Um, so Valentine's Day is a day in which the goal is just to get back to even. He was like, this is the way I've been busy in the world. And, and what I'm trying to point out is that um, we think in these grand ways of where we're going to find the devil. But the powers of darkness, I think, have subtler ways of pulling us away to keep you perpetually angry and angsty with the person you're sitting next to. To, to have um, uh, the advertisement be these um, uh, tables outside with beautiful lights hanging over them where the family all gathers always perfectly. This is a common image in most of our advertisements. It's also a multi-ethnic family, very important. Um, and to say that my life doesn't mirror that. I'm lucky if we can make it through dinner without any, any sort of arguments with a five-year-old and a two-year-old and prairie not flipping out. Um, like, that these are the things we hold up. And what they do is they pull us away from who we're called to be and how we are to live in the world. There's um, I just finished the Brothers Karamazov after trying to read through it for um, four or five years and giving up halfway or three-quarters of the way through every time. Um, but early on in the Brothers Karamazov, there's a scene with the Grand Inquisitor, and Jesus comes back, and he's, he's coming throughout Spain, and the Inquisitor pulls him aside, and sort of, uh, Jesus says nothing in these scenes, which is characteristic of Jesus when he meets with people in power. Um, you'll see it with Pilate and, and Herod, too. He doesn't say a lot at the, in these scenes. Is He accuses him of being, um, sorry, um, he accuses him of being uh, insufficiently compassionate. That Jesus, in resisting these temptations, he almost lays these out. Why wouldn't you have turned stones into bread to feed people? He says, we've corrected your errors. You didn't take power offered to you by Satan, but what we've done is made the church powerful so that we can care for and equip people in the world. He says, Jesus, you misjudged the human lot. You thought us stronger than we are. And here, this is the temptation where it comes more home to us, although I think the, the earlier one with the door interview is very close to home, is that the church has this temptation to say, well, Jesus resisted these things. Maybe it's for us to pick them up. He didn't judge us well enough. We need to be the ones who are fully equipped feeding people, taking power and testing God to sort of prove that he is real in the world so that people can, can have some semblance of safety. The end of the scene, not to give it away, but, but Jesus kisses the grand inquisitor and he unlocks the door and Jesus walks out. Um, Jesus doesn't defend himself from these accusations. And the last thing I want to point out about the devil is I was reading through uh, Pope Benedict's book on Jesus, and it, this comes from the second temptation in which the devil quotes scripture back at Jesus, Psalm 91, incidentally. And he talks about this story from the 1970s um, written, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy uh, actually suggests that the, the devil is sort of alive in the world, and he gets an honorary degree in theology from the University of Tübingen, which is like, for theology, would be like Harvard at the time, because the devil has shown himself sort of equipped at discussing these things. The first time I heard about these temptations in my memory was they said, well, when the Satan tempts you, just quote scripture back. But the person giving that talk never got around to what happens when Satan quotes scripture at you, um, which is an interesting sort of side twist there, that Satan comes back to him with scripture itself. 
And what he says in this, this fictional book is that Satan grows up and, and writes a book called The Open Way to World Peace and Welfare, and it becomes a bestseller. Um, the Open Way to World Peace and Welfare. And what happens is people begin worshiping well-being, in the Pope's words, and, um, and wellness. Now it's close to home. You know, that this is the way in which we can take these temptations and say, you can achieve these yourself. Engineer your life, engineer society, and you can um, one-up Jesus per se, as he is the one who was tempted in these ways and resists them. We often want to pick them up ourselves. And so this is to say that I hope at Defiance Church, that we can begin to take the, the, or begin or have been and continue to take the presence of these things seriously in our world. That the universe just isn't flat with, with sin as my action on one side. And if you get into the Pauline literature, the later parts of the New Testament, sin isn't just what you do. It's a capital S thing that is a power in the world as well. And one of the things, and Shelley will call me out afterwards, is that I'd like to do a sermon series at some point on the three things we sort of do battle with, which in, in classic Christian theology is the world, the flesh, and the devil. That there are three things in, that we do, and it's worth remembering that, that there's three because not everything then just gets blamed on the devil. There's the flesh, which is, which is near to you, and the world too, which is sort of pulling us off. But those are this three-dimensional way or four-dimensional way in which we can inhabit the world in a different place. Jesus here resists the temptations that Satan comes to the hymn with. I'm trying to think where to go because we have a baby dedication today too, so I don't want to go uh, too terribly long here. Jesus comes out of this place. He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and Satan is there. And then the, the title in the scripture is changed, as, as Chris read. He becomes the tempter, came to him and said, if you are the Son of God. And that seems to be a weird question. And the, most biblical scholars think that the proper way that Satan is addressing him is, since you are the Son of God. Um, since you are the Son of God, do these things. Turn these stones into bread, um, throw yourself from the building and have angels rescue you and worship me and you will bow down and, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, which raises the question, are all the kingdoms of the world captive to Satan? And, and particularly the New Testament seems to say yes to that question. Um, although it's worth noting that in the gospels after this scene, Christ interacts with demons um, and they always lose. That as he sort of withstands here and they go into the world, their power is diminished. Uh, I think it's Lewis who talks about how uh, there's a radio broadcast that the war is over and Christ has won. And it's a bit like um, people, if you, if you think of um, the islands in the Philippines where World War II is, where they were still fighting long after the battle was over because word hasn't reached them that the battle is over. That... That, that Christ is sort of one and what we're waiting and doing in the meantime is announcing that that victory has taken place. And so this brings me to my second point, and then we'll have one more after, um, is, is recapitulation, uh, which is a word that I struggle with saying. Um, 
recapitulate. I don't know why. Um, what Christ does is he, in these scenes, is one way of looking at them, is he recapitulates the story of Israel, but as a faithful one. Or it, with what Brian read, he recapitulates the story of Adam as the new truly human one made by God, and he stays faithful through the temptations. This is um, uh, an ancient way of thinking about how the cross works, is that Christ becomes the true human who lives this faithfully, and in that way restores humanity's sort of image that it is tarnished, and it is his living it truly, he does it. And so if you're looking at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you can see that in his birth, he recapitulates um, the Exodus story and exile and the ways in which Joseph and Mary are cast out into Egypt and they have to return. He recapitulates the faithfulness that, that people show in the face of, of tyrants. And then in the baptism, he recapitulates the Exodus experience, that he enters into the waters and he comes out the other side as sort of a new Moses or a better Moses, if you want to put it that way. That Christ is retelling these stories of the people of God as the faithful one living it. Christ becomes faithful Israel as he recapitulates this story. He becomes faithful Adam, the truly human one, as he recapitulates the story. And the image from the... the the video we showed, there's the apple in that one scene with Christ looking at it, which the author is clearly telling us, or the, the artist is clearly telling us that Christ is recapitulating that temptation and is resisting it at that time. It's a little bit of a, a jump, but it's not that big of a jump to say that Christ is becoming the faithful one. And, and Jesus is drawn out into the, the wilderness or the desert, and where Adam and Eve is is the garden. If you think of the garden as an ordered space, a space where you, you have sort of um, wildness, but it's tamed, there, is, there, there are these things. And the, the, what Christ goes into as one coming after Adam is into the wilderness. He has to go into the results of human sin. Where Adam and Eve confront this one, the snake, is the garden. And as he sort of ruled and had his way with the world since then, it's become, in, if you want to do um, exegesis of geography, the story of geography, it's become a wasteland. It's become a dangerous place. And in um, Mark, it says, and the wild beasts were with him there. That he goes out into these places. And so what Christ is doing is recapitulating these stories the last five years, we've gone through most of these stories in the summer. And so this first temptation to, to turn uh, rocks into bread, and, and Christ answers each time with words from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so if you think that's eh, a stretch saying he's new Israel, like he's actually quoting from the book about new Israel the whole time. And so the, uh, Satan comes to him and says, will you turn these stones into bread? And he says that... Uh, don't you know that um, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God? There is a... I believe I have it in here. Uh, this, is, this is the actual passage. He humbled you, causing to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither 
you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But if you were a good Jew and you finished this, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 days. Know then in your heart as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. That one of the primary images in the Torah for Israel as they go into the wilderness is God's son. And what God's son does is the wilderness is they fall for these temptations and test God. And so Jesus, again, as he recapitulates this story, doesn't fall for these things. But right here, even in this passage, it said that. So that's the first temptation. I think we can see within that temptation, first, um, the desire to be self-serving as the church. We are so hungry. Um, everything seems so far away. How can we feed ourselves? I asked my friend Andrew, who's a successful church planner, he preached here, and I said, Andrew, what can I do to, to, to grow this church? Do you know any tricks? And he said, Matt, uh, there are some, but if you did them, they would not give you the growth that you desire. Can I turn these stones to bread? That's not a slight at you guys. <laughs> Can we do this ourselves in this way? Christ is faithfully recapitulating that story to go up, up on high. And it says that, that several times that the, when the Lord is frustrated with Israel in these texts, that they tested him. And so in the second temptation, Christ is invited to tempt, test God. Throw yourself from this place and see if the angels rescued you. That psalm is ultimately about trusting the providence of God. But Satan twists it to sort of say that they'll, they'll help you. And, and like I said, these seeds of conflict that are deep within this, the, the people mock Jesus on the cross, if you are God's son, call down angels and get off the cross. Peter's rebuke, which I alluded to by, by God, um, Get behind me, Satan, after he confesses that he's the Lord and he says, you, I need to go to the cross in Jerusalem. And Peter says, no, don't do that. That's not the way we have to go. Get behind me, Satan. Um, that there's these ways in which these play out. It's the story in condensed form. People will try, even people close to Jesus will say, are you sure that's the way we have to go? Call down angels and get off this. So the third temptation, he takes them up high in a mountain. And last week we talked about the role of mountains in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the mountain here, the mountain that he gives the Sermon on the Mount from, the Mount of the Transfiguration. But most notably connected with this temptation is the mount from which, mountain which he gives the Great Commission from. Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, and this is idolatry, which is the, the main thing that most of the book of Deuteronomy is about, as we found last summer, is stay away from idolatry. Stay away from trying to make deals with other gods and other things to get you through this world alive. Only God will bring you through this world alive. And you can personalize those things out into all the things we have in the modern world. We talk about the, the military industrial complex. I often say there's a medical industrial complex. They'll get you out of the world alive. Um, uh, and that's sort of what we believe on sort of these things. We reach for those other gods and idolatry to sort of make a different path in the world. 
And Christ resists that one. But what Satan offers him is what he has after the cross, um, that all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. But what Satan offers him is a chance to skip the cross, to skip the road he has to go on. And so it is too for us that we are tempted to skip the roads that we have to go on. We can shortcut what it means to be the church in the world. We can program our lives in these ways. There are um, technological solutions that can make us better than we are. And so these are these temptations from Satan as they come to Jesus, as he recapitulates, like I said, it's a hard word, the story of Israel and the story of Adam, and so that he refashions us. There's this closing image that I want to focus on. There's a question of um, after Jesus does this and the Spirit is given to us at Pentecost, are we better than the Israelites are? As Christ has recapitulated this story and repaired the image of humanity in the world, are we capable of doing better than they are? And what I tried to suggest the last couple summers is we're pretty much just like them. We've seen the mighty works of God. We've seen the way that God has, has thrown down Pharaoh. We've seen the way in which he is demissing darkness in the world. And we say, but in Egypt, we had garlic. Um, Back when I lived in that sin, I had comfort from it. Even if it was slight and empty, um, it's what I had. And yet, and uh, Brian and Carla and I talked about this uh, at morning prayer, I think sometimes that's letting us off too easy. That through what Christ has done in repairing that image, in granting us the same spirit that resided in him and brought him out into the wilderness, perhaps we can, we can try, not try, um, Rest a little bit better in what God has done. That we can see a little bit more. And the key phrase or emphasis should be on a little bit. <laughs> I don't think we're, we're much better, better off. Uh, and I think that the Protestant in me wants to say we're about the same. But I think it's worth remembering that Christ, in granting us his spirit, has given us other ways to sort of see through the temptations that come to us, that perhaps we might be able to do more. So this image, it was in the email a long time ago. It's the picture of a monastery in Ethiopia. Um, And these places are at risk at the moment. But the reason why I chose it is that this is the wasteland of a desert. And here, a community of prayer, of communion, of care and love for one another appears to be a garden, a forest, a place of life. And so my hope in prayer and hearing this story and in, in coming to this um, as, as Defiance Church is perhaps we cannot change the whole desert. And to think we can is to pick up probably the third temptation that Satan offered Christ. But in our small plot of earth here in this church, in our neighborhoods and in our lives, perhaps the desert wasteland that has come after the fall can be again to be eclipsed a little bit into a forest or into a garden where the good news of God is believed 
and the announcement in the broadcast that Satan's powers are falling, the darkness of the world has been defeated, and that light is coming into the world. Let us pray. God, through the temptation narrative, through the temptation story, we see the story of the people of God retold. As you were led by the Spirit into this place and faced with the tempter, we see what it means to be called by you as your son and the temptations that come along the way. May this story and looking at you and considering the ways in which your son was faithful in these temptations embolden and strengthen us to resist those as they come our way as well. To not turn stones to bread for our sake or even for the shortcut of taking care of that which you take care of. to not test you, to not throw ourselves from high places, to not use scripture as a way of showing where you should show up if we just press the right buttons, to not test you in the ways in which we say you haven't cared for us, as Israel did in the wilderness. And third, to resist the idolatry of our times and all times, to say, but if we but bow here, If we just cut a corner here, we just aim a little bit lower, all things will be given to us. But instead, as we enter this Lenten season, the season in which we walk to the cross with you, by your Spirit, enable us too to pick up our crosses and follow you so that we may be there in the glorious joy of your resurrection and see the true transformation that comes on the other side of that. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.